Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, a regular set of conversations with the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing technology industry. People who work in the world's largest media tech and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by Scott Brinker. If you've been working in MarTech for some time, Scott needs no introduction at all. He's affectionately called the godfather of MarTech. And Scott's been a pioneer in the marketing technology industry. He's been working in this space for more than a decade. Uh, So Scott currently serves as the VP of Platform Ecosystem at HubSpot. He's the editor-at-large at Chief MarTech. And he holds degrees in computer science at Harvard University and also is a fellow at MIT Sloan. Scott's also behind the now famous MarTech Landscape Supergraphic. You've probably seen it somewhere on the internet. It's a massive page with more than 8,000 marketing technologies on it. Uh, But Scott's played a really instrumental role for helping the industry think about the role of different marketing technologies, how they're categorized, and, and what their usage is within the ecosystems that they create. And so in this episode, we're talking about latest articles on Chief MarTech, um, his perspective on MarTech in 2022, what we should be paying attention to in the industry as we step into a new year. So the three themes that Scott calls out are commerce, big ops or big operations, and no code. And now I give you Scott Brinker. Great. Uh, Hello. It's so great to be here with you, Juan. I'm a big fan of yours. Oh, I can say likewise. I've used your super graphics, I think, a hundred times now, at least, um, even in my own work and my own thinking. Uh, You do a great service to the industry. But I want to talk about, uh, as we get into this conversation, about the godfather of MarTech. I want to understand where that title came from. But more importantly, what's been your story? Where have you been working? How did you get into MarTech industry? I mean, perhaps when you started, there wasn't a thing as such as MarTech. What has been that story and how did you get into the space? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the uh, the godfather of MarTech label, uh, I definitely would say with tongue in cheek, um, uh, I think it was like Dominic Castro at CMS Wire, like introduced me at some conference years ago that way. And uh, uh, I only find it amusing to think about, you know, like putting on my best Marlon Brando accent and saying, we're going to A-B test an offer they can't refuse. All right. Anyways, um, <laughs> how do I get into this stuff? You know, so my background uh, was uh, originally actually as a software developer and really as a software entrepreneur. And then as you become a software entrepreneur, you realize that, oh, just because you build the software doesn't necessarily mean they buy the software, uh, you know? And so that uh, introduced me into the world of marketing and then ultimately got into the business with web development of building technology for marketers. I'd say that was where I really just found this fascination. I mean, if we go back 20 years, dating myself here, of just, you know, the world of IT and software and technology was just on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum, you know, from the world of, you know, marketing. Yet it was so clear, you know, as the world was going digital, like these two uh, opposing forces out there in the universe were like colliding and intermingling. And uh, yeah, I guess I've been hooked pretty much ever since. 
Well, that's fascinating because, you know, that's, it's very similar to how I got into the space. It was just this amazing collision between, you know, technology and then how marketers are starting to use it and starting to harness that to create value for their brands and meet changes in consumer behavior. And it seems like that melding world is just this, I don't know, it's a melting pot of creativity. There's just so much fascinating stuff happening. There's startups launched every single day. You know, there's huge funding rounds from VCs and equity partners. And, you know, there's just this incredible ecosystem. I, I do share that passion around uh, what's happening in this space and how do we actually think about it, which uh, you've been very instrumental in, Scott. So I want to talk about this concept of the three big MarTech themes for 2022. Now, I read through your article, uh, our listeners can read along as well, because we're following that article uh, pretty closely in this uh, conversation, um, and that's on chiefmartech.com. Uh, so uh, you're talking about it, and you're thinking through, okay, what are three things that leaders in the space really need to be paying attention to? And you call them out as, you know, one bucket is commerce, another bucket is uh, big operations, and the last bucket is what you're calling no code. So maybe you can help us understand the topics a little bit and just give us a broad strokes introduction into how you're thinking about these three themes and why they're important. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you've wrestled with this as well, too, like being asked to capture, hey, what are the exciting trends that are happening in MarTech today? It's like, well, where do I begin? <laughs> because almost every facet, you know, of how marketing works now and the technologies that uh, are supporting and enabling that, you know, they're just going through so much like innovation and advancement. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it is actually very, very hard uh, for me at least to like even boil down to like, okay, out of all these things that are happening, what are some of the common themes that I think are both relatively universal that a lot of companies, you know, are going to find themselves uh, uh, working with this year, um, you know, and also those that, yeah, are going to probably have the most significant impact in what marketing actually executes uh, here in 2022. Because there's lots of stuff a little bit, you know, further down the horizon, you know, I mean, uh, Web3 and Metaverse and all this stuff that's super interesting, but not, not as big necessarily here for 2022. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, commerce, big ops and no code at a very, very high level, you know, I think uh, the, the, this e-commerce advancement, which has been happening for 25 years, but in the past two years of the pandemic, got an incredible acceleration. If you are in a B2C business, you know, whether you have a direct relationship traditionally with your customer or you've been going through channels that whole universe now of changing the commerce technologies and touch points you engage with customers um, is, yeah, just on fire. But what's really interesting is the same thing is now also happening here in B2B. You know, uh, the pandemic put us in a mode where, you know, these traditional like, you know, uh, in-person trade show, you know, go out into the field, you know, sales motions they needed to be reinvented. And there has been some amazing invention that's happened with that. And it turns out that both customers and sellers, buyers and sellers uh, are getting really excited about that. Uh, so there's that. Big ops, I know we're gonna go into this more deeply, but it's the shorthand version is we spent 10, 15 years talking about big data. Oh my goodness, how do we get our arms around all this data that's now flowing through our organization? And the good news is we're actually 
we're kind of getting that motion down. But now what's interesting is on top of that data, all these different apps and automations and algorithms and analyses that are all running in parallel throughout the organization. You know, this is now really where it's the activation uh, of that data. And all of a sudden there's a heck of a lot more of that than like there ever was in any point in time in history. And this is both a really exciting opportunity of like, how do we really orchestrate, you know, uh, all this activity across the business and also pretty challenging. Like, how do you get all these different pieces, the complexity, the digital complexity that is, uh, yeah, uh, exploding inside organizations. Uh, we've got to find ways to tame it. Uh, and then the last one on no code is to me, actually a very broad interpretation of no code. I don't think about it as just, oh, could I build an app? that I would have needed a software developer for. I mean, that's a part of it. Um, I kind of look at it as any activity that historically you needed a specialist, whether it was a software engineer or some integration architect or, you know, web developer or graphic designer or data scientist, you know, that all of a sudden now the tools that allow non-specialists, general business users, marketers, not to do all of it, but to be able to take down a whole bunch of these like lower end use cases across that board. It's just empowering, uh, you know, the productivity of what individuals inside the marketing organization can do. Whew. All right, I'll take a breath. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you take a breath, Scott, because those are three absolutely massive topics. And I, I agree with you that sort of broad strokes looking across the industry and you know, there's all these future dreams and thinking metaverse, web three, you know, um, artificial intelligence, all these things are sort of a little bit further down the horizon, but you're thinking about the next 12 months, what are marketers, what are digital leaders thinking about and what are they should be focusing on as they plan into the calendar year. And so I think it's quite good, the three broad strokes and understanding how they co coalesce together. And at the end of this conversation, we'll talk about how these three themes intersect into something that you call the digital firm. But we'll pause for that for now, but we'll get to that at the end. But I wanna talk about our first topic, the, the theme of commerce. Now you mentioned, uh, which I find very fascinating is that uh, you talk about that the pandemic spurred this activity for online commerce, you know, and that is uh, obviously, that's an obvious insight. I think, you know, like a lot of uh, people are buying online now to create new patterns for buying online across all sectors. Um, and as we're getting out of the pandemic, that's sort of dropping off a bit, I think, as people emerge back into the real world. Um, but you focus in on one area, which is B2B buying. People that are selling to businesses, you know, uh, looking at those uh, different interactions and how the pandemic has taken a lot of that online and the role of commerce within that as well. So uh, last week in the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, number 70, I talk about one really interesting story about Pfizer, you know, so everybody knows about Pfizer now because of vaccines, of course, but they just had a record year in revenue. I think it was somewhere in the realms of $60 billion, $80 billion in, uh, in revenue. But despite that, they actually also downsized their sales team. Why are they doing that? Well, uh, the sales technologies and uh, I think what you call revenue operations as well, is creating a lot of efficiencies in uh, in that particular space of sales. Uh, you don't need to jump on a plane to go from New York to London to close a deal anymore. You can do it over Zoom because that's normalized. But more importantly, uh, B2B buyers, they're wanting just to transact online, similar to sort of e-commerce patterns as well. 
And so I want to understand from your perspective, is this actually driving positive change? What does the automation of uh, a lot of these sales activities do uh, for people who are leading sales teams? You know, how does this follow consumer behaviors? And what should we be thinking about when it comes to this change, taking sales from offline to online? Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a ton here. I feel like we could spend the whole hour just on this question. Um, yeah, I guess, so one of the things we have to recognize is the early parts of the sales process in B2B have been steadily going digital now for like two decades. Um, I mean, there was a time where if you wanted any information, you know, for evaluating a vendor, you know, making decisions about, you know, how that would work, uh, you know, for your particular uh, business, um, yeah, you you had one one option, which was basically to talk to the sales rep, you know, and the sales rep was the point of all information, which, to be honest, right, was a, typically a huge like asymmetrical advantage uh, for sellers. They had all the information about what was actually possible, you know, in their world, and the buyer kind of had to like you know get that from the salesperson by like you know continuing to give up you know more and more of the strategic information from their side. Now, of course, yeah, moving into the web, we saw like, you know, more and more buyers, they just want to self-service this information. They want like, just put it online. Let me go. Let me look at it. In fact, if you weren't willing to put it online, they were nonetheless using on, you know, now on more, you know, like online review sites or, you know, community networks of their peers to say, hey, can you tell me about, you know, vendor X? And so slowly but surely, more and more of that sales journey have been moving digital but the last mile, you know, the actual closing of a deal, like, hey, I'm going to sign a PO here for a half a million, you know, dollars, um, that kind of resisted going digital for a very long time. That, uh, yeah, no, I want the salesperson to come here. I want to meet them. I want to shake their hand. You know, I think if I'm going to sign a half million dollar contract for them, they should probably take me out for a steak dinner. You know, and that was just sort of like a, 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 a cultural aspect, you know, of large scale B2B sales for all of history. Then we find ourselves in the pandemic and that's just completely not an option, you know? So what do you do? Well, all of a sudden like salespeople really started to get into like, Hey, how do we, how do we kind of create that sense of engagement, you know, in the last mile, uh, you know, with our buyers um, and then for the buyers actually being able to get to a place like when they're ready to execute, you know, that transaction, can we even make it a little bit more efficient for them? And so one of the things I found really, really interesting, and there's a, there's a McKinsey article out there, I, I don't recall the title, but if you sort of look for it, it's like B2B sales trends or something like this, just published uh, uh, this past month here. Um, the one of the things I asked about was like, okay, well, how many people are comfortable spending half a million dollars or more through purely a digital channel? It turned out it's like, I mean, it went up from like a year or so ago to like in the low 20s to like then this past year, like in the mid 30s, you know. And so, yeah, sure, we're used to thinking of, you know, e-commerce, you know, as like, yes, I've logged into Amazon and I've, you know, reordered my uh, laundry detergent, you know. But to now be in a mode where for all kinds of, you know, B2B and industrial purchases, we've just gone into a place where people are now comfortable transacting digitally. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a really massive shift. And now here's where things come around to get really exciting is 
the moment you start looking at having an end-to-end -end digital experience, uh, you know, for sales, not just for sort of the pre-sales marketing side of it, wow, all the creative things we've been doing in the MarTech world, you know, to create this, you know, better experience for the buyer in marketing stages, we're now seeing this like creative explosion of like, okay, in that last mile, how do we make that experience uh, even better? How do we help with the process of, you know, like approvals in a digital basis? You know, how do we help people see into the pipeline that as they place their order, these are the next stages of what's gonna be happening and, you know, fulfilling, you know, that order or fulfilling that service. And it's starting to become really an end-to-end -end digital process, which on one hand is a lot of opportunity for efficiency, for the seller, but also a lot of efficiency for the buyer and a lot of better experience for the buyer that, um, yeah, I don't know, we'll see what happens. I'm sure people won't turn down a steak dinner as uh, you know, we get the, you know, back into more and more uh, uh, physical world interactions. But I think the actual mechanics of buying are going to be a lot more optimized from here on out. Mm. Yeah, it, it reminds me a lot, Scott, of um, sort of the early shift to e-commerce. Um, remember that? Like, I mean, when Amazon was just emerging and they went from books to selling basically everything else on the face of the planet, you know, that sort of that that horizon shift of, uh, well, the biggest shift, I think, from consumer's perspective was the ability to self-educate. So going to a retail store, let's say you want to buy a washing machine. I'm just picking a random example for a minute. Um, you know, you'd have to go to a retail store. You'd have to talk to a sales rep to understand the specific specifications, the the needs. And then, you know, sometimes if you're a bit of a savvy consumer, you'd haggle on price. You know, you'd go back and forth a little bit and go, okay, sold if you pay cash. You know, that was back in the 90s. But then when e-commerce emerged, customers could, uh, they could look at reviews. They could self-educate. And I want to ask you about this because do you think that this is that same consumer change is happening in sales and B2B buying. Whereas, you, you know, we've got um, vendor platforms like G2, you know, uh, Gartner's building their own consumer rating marketplace. It's not very hard to find vendor fees now, particularly in the, bar, the MarTech space, you know, or based on volume or just regular costs monthly or yearly. It seems to me that there's a really interesting shift towards um, B2B buyers self-educating. And that's what's driving a lot of this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's interesting um, that McKinsey article I was referencing, there was another factoid there that I don't think I'd put in the article here, but uh, it definitely stuck with me was there's been all this growth in digital sales capability that could just be purely self-service, you know, and how do you support that, uh, you know, from a, uh, um, yeah, technology implementation experience implementation perspective. But actually, that was only the second fastest growing segment. The fastest growing segment of talent demand in sales was for hybrid salespeople, those who could basically do both, you know, that they could help with the crafting of, you know, supporting like a self-service or purely digital experience, uh, you know, based uh, buying uh, experience but could also at the drop of a hat be able to like engage with a customer, whether it was over video conference, or I'm sure, you know, uh, there, there will be physical channels, you know, uh, yet again here at B2B, you know, and this idea of essentially saying the buyer is in control. 
uh, you know, I mean, we've been on this journey of basically taking con the asymmetrical control from the seller uh, and moving it to uh, the buyer, you know, steadily, the, the theme continues, you know, but basically buyers want to self-service most of the time mm. until they reach a point that they want to talk to a human, you know, and that they are in control of saying, you know, I've got some questions or I want to, you know, get this perspective or I want to have someone walk me through this, you know, and then at that point, actually, it's fascinating, you know, what really matters then in winning the business there is how quickly can you respond to that? You know, are you able to then actually match a salesperson, you know, to that buyer who's able to like, you know, leverage the information from whatever the self-service digital experiences have been up to that, that point to like hit the ground running and really be able to like say, hey, okay, fantastic. This is where you're at. This is a stage. What can I help with? And be able to deliver those answers and do that through a uniquely human uh, conversation. Mm. That sort of power combination, I think is, I think that's actually where we're going to see the greatest growth and success for these next few years. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, you know, as you're speaking there, Scott, I was thinking about the emergence of the product-led growth movement. You know, I'm sure you've seen communities and um, a whole bunch of content and practitioners come out and say like product-led growth, which is effectively uh, a customer can go onto a website. They can they can uh, try the product for themselves. They don't have to interact with any salesperson at all. They go in, they try it, they figure out if it's for their use case and then they'll make decisions on that. You know, that's that whole product-led automation pipeline, um, particularly for te tech companies, I think, and SaaS. But that, that's been growing over the past two years as well. You know, there's a whole movement now of that, although people that are really focused on product-led growth and convincing more SaaS companies to actually get into product-led growth. And, you know, it's really interesting, like companies like HubSpot, which you work at, but then also Segment, you know, these companies were pioneering, the, pioneering these sort of uh, product-led growth uh, concepts uh, years and years ago. And so I think that's really interesting. It accelerates a certain movement of people, a certain way of thinking about selling technology, um, which I find fascinating. But I do agree that, you know, there comes a point where, and I think an interesting use case here, particularly for enterprises, you know, often a buyer will go to a vendor to say, well, I have to now convince the executive leadership team to, to buy this thing. Well, how can you help me with that? Can you give me some use cases? Or can you give me some data? Or can you give me some stats? You know, and so vendors have this interesting role of not necessarily convincing the buyer, but the person that they need to convince to get sign off. And so, you know, there's still a lot of patterns there that I think you can't automate necessarily. But overarchingly, I think that there's this self-education piece that, uh, that uh, consumers are more empowered to do now, more than ever. Um, but uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully a few vendors will take me out for a steak dinner, Scott, who knows? Um, but, you know, I think it's fascinating, the, um, the, the, the changes in behavior there that's driving all this new innovation uh, in sales and B2B plant purchasing. So let's move on. I want to talk uh, just off the tail of that comment. You mentioned that there's this interesting shift, this mental shift, sort of more in the marketing department from, you know, go to market to go to ecosystem. And you reference an IBM report, really fascinating stuff, talking about how leading brands are their rethinking channel from, you know, social, email, SMS, towards more thinking about participating, building ecosystems that facilitate a number of interactions with consumers. You know, one thing I think about often is the rise of online communities and the role of online communities of where, you know, that community is actually uh, multiple people adding value to each other. And there's more platforms now growing that sort of uh, environment where it's an ecosystem of participation instead of just pushing messages out to different marketing channels. Um, but I want to understand because ecosystem is a big word, you know, it can mean a whole galaxy of different things. 
But what a few examples are you seeing in this change of worldview? Go to market to go to ecosystem or channel towards ecosystem. What does that look like in 2022? Yeah, and I should give a shout out to a fellow named Alan Adler, uh, who's actually the person who introduced me to this phrase, uh, go to ecosystem. Because, uh, you know, as VP of platform ecosystem at HubSpot, I've uh, obviously been a, a, a passionate advocate for ecosystem thinking. You know, but I think that Turner phrase that he had was really insightful because Traditionally, when we've talked about go-to-markets, uh, you know, it's really been a very linear relationship between, okay, well, we have these channels and we have these audiences and this is what we're going to do here and this is what we're going to do over there, you know, and it, it, it imagines that there is, you know, this, this, this sort of swim lanes, uh, you know, between these different aspects of our, uh, you know, go-to-market strategy. And the reality is the swim lanes are kind of all merging together here. I mean, like in the ecosystem space, like, you know, you could look back a few years ago in HubSpot and you could say, okay, well, HubSpot has these solutions partners and services partners um, who, uh, uh, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, they're a combination of resellers and uh, value-added resellers and service providers on top of that. We have this other channel of, you know, companies that uh, build apps or integrate their SaaS apps, uh, you know, with HubSpot. We then have like these other things like, you know, online communities where, you know, the power users, you know, are connecting with each other and, you know, really helping to move, you know, practice forward. And so, yeah, you could say, oh, well, go to market strategy would be, here's what we're going to do in this channel. Here's what we're going to do in this other channel. Here's what we're going to do in the third one. But then you all of a sudden, like you look at the ecosystem world today and we've got like solutions partners who are also building apps and then they help to lead, you know, integrations with other SaaS products and they're, you know, big uh, participants in the power user communities, you know, and this intermingling between these channels I mean, it's amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is actually a wonderful thing, you know, because every time we start doing these intersections, you know, between the value that was available in one facet of our channel with the value that's available in another, it's kind of a multiplicative effect. I mean, you have ecosystem participants that can't, that don't just talk about their piece of the equation, you know, with customers, but they're really in a position to help represent uh, the greater whole, uh, you know, uh, the 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 sum of some of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, um, and so I think that's that's really exciting, and it kind of mirrors that broader just ecosystem shift from that IBM report that the challenge of the digital age, um, you know, that, that businesses had been running into um, was this disappearing of boundaries, right? I mean, again, like go back 20 years, you know, the, you know, most leaders in particular markets felt like there were very clear boundaries and swim lanes between them and other industries and other, you know, companies. But in the digital world, you know, these boundaries have really started to blur. Uh, and so at, at, at first, I think a lot of the companies saw that as a competitive threat. Like, oh my goodness, you know, we thought we had two or three competitors, but yikes, now that we sort of step back, I mean, my goodness, there's hundreds of companies that are, you know, competing with us in different ways. And it's kind of actually turning that on its head and saying, well, wait a second. You know, there's actually hundreds and hundreds of companies where there might be cooperation opportunities, you know, that we can actually not just compete with each other. There's ways we might be able to help grow each other's business 
And so that ecosystem thinking, um, I mean, this is a really radical transformation of how, how business strategy can work. So it just wasn't part of the world, you know, 25 years ago outside of like, I don't know what, Microsoft Windows or something like that. Mm. And now it's everywhere. Mm. Let me ask you a question, Scott. What's the difference between a platform and an ecosystem in your mind? Ooh, all right. Um, so for me, like a platform, and this is from the software side of things, you know, like the platform is like the foundation upon which people build. Uh, it is, um, well, I mean, like we can take an example from a completely different industry, like, you know, automobiles, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, many of the leading auto manufacturers, right? They would have a core platform, you know, a set of foundational common elements, you know, across a whole range of vehicles, uh, because, yeah, that basically was able to optimize the whole production process. It provides some consistency, you know, all the way through on like, you know, the maintenance end. But on top of that platform, right, we know there's all these different variations of different consumers who have different needs here, and we want these many seats here, or we want the, you know, better radio and this thing, or the sunroof over there. And to be able to customize and extend on top of that platform, in many ways, it's like trying to get the best of both worlds. It's saying, like, you know, can we get all the benefits of, like, that, that cohesion and that standardization at some level, but at the same time, also reap all the benefits of like this incredible diversity and specialization. And so the ecosystem is all the diversity and specialization that happens around those platforms. Interesting. So it's it's kind of saying that the platform is a town square. Well, I'm taking an analogy here. Platform is a town square. Somebody has to build a town square. Somebody has to build the marketplace, you know, in the center of a city or back in the old days in the villages. But the ecosystem is actually the participants, the people who are participating within the environment that's been created for them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and that's exciting too, because when you think about ecosystems, boy, I completely forgot to bring up this point earlier, but right, it's not just vendors who are purchased, oh, service providers and app providers and you know, folks like that. It's the other customers themselves. You know, the customers are coming up with these solutions and these ideas and these practices, and they're sharing them with other customers. Uh, and that starts to become really magical when you think that your ecosystem is kind of everyone who is touching your product or service in some sort of way. Mm. You know, I, I appreciate it because, you know, this is a question I just threw out into the wild there just to, to understand the difference, because I think a lot of people have uh, misconceptions you know, they talk ecosystem, they talk platform, you know, these concepts meld together and it becomes very unclear often. Uh, what, are they, what are they actually talking about here? But I agree with you that, you know, if you think about Microsoft for one minute, you know, the original gangster platform company, you know, like they built the operating system in which even my computer right now was running on, you know, they built that fundamental architecture in which people build. And, you know, when you look at their investor calls and when they're doing reports, they try to hover between 20 to 30% of revenue extracted out of their platform. Because, you know, they've got Xbox, they've got Windows, they've got, you know, just a whole variety of different types of platforms that people build on top of. Um, but they try not to extract more. They, they say we want more value going into the participants of the ecosystem than we are extracting out of, you know. And I think that's actually quite responsible and a really great way of thinking about it because, it's kind of like, and um, I was just reading um, your article actually uh, yesterday about, you know, HubSpot's a thousand apps in this ecosystem and, you know, how much value was being created 
from all of those different apps, being able to service each other, being able to tap into the HubSpot um, platforms, you know, and being able to actually, yeah, have this environment in which you can create mutual value, you can create alliances and partnerships and all those great things, right? But that's all the creation of value that really doesn't have a lot to do with HubSpot other than building the environment in which those apps can exist. And so I think that this shift from going to market, going to ecosystem is so fundamental because we do live in an age of platforms and we do live in an age in which uh, we have to deal with the Amazons and the Googles and the, the big platforms of the world. You know, that's just going to be a, just a reality for marketers. So, you know, I, it's curious to me, this is, to me, this seems like it's very tech focused. But like when it comes to consumer brands, you know, I even I think about things like, you know, Adidas that entered in and they joined the board ape um, sort of, you know, the NFT movement. I would say for Adidas as a consumer brand, that that's them participating in a certain ecosystem. So they go in and they do a partnership, but then, you know, there's all these other buyers and sellers within that board apes environment. You know, to me, that's kind of a really good example of a consumer brand moving into a platform way of thinking. Um, but I think this space is absolutely fascinating. We can talk about it, I think, for hours and hours because there's so much unpacking that. But let's move on. I want to talk about big ops for a little bit. And the reason why is I think you have some fantastic insights about how companies are thinking about their data. You know, and data is, is really for most brands now is just it's so central to how they operate. It touches every part of their business. And I think this is so fundamental in 2022, this m continuing movement towards what you're calling big ops or uh, the long of that is uh, big operations. <clears throat> I'll let you unpack the concept for our listeners. Um, but, you know, you're you're saying that um, that MarTech is moving away. Uh, some parts of MarTech are moving away from being siloed to the marketing and the digital departments becoming more of a holistic business-wide um, data unification endeavor. Uh, to quote your article, uh, you say, this is not a reduction in the power and importance of MarTech and marketing operations. On the contrary, this is a dramatic expansion of the scope and scale of the work of MarTech and marketing ops professionals that can engage with it, working beyond the walls of classic MarTech. So, you know, I often say that every company is now a technology company. They have to think like a technology company. They have to think differently about how they approach what they're doing for customers. And, you know, uh, when I'm talking to leaders in this space, and really interesting concept uh, popped out to me last week, actually, about this idea of creating a data front door for everyone in the business, sales, customer service, marketing, IT. You know, everyone needs to sort of tap into this rich, growing repository of data. Um, but there's a tons of overlapping concepts when you come to approach, how do you create that front door? You know, uh, there's business automation, there's something that um, you touch on, which is called the composable enterprise, you know, there's data operations, you know, I, I want to understand, you know, what's driving this shift to what you're calling big operations and why are people paying attention to it now? Yeah, I am so fascinated by what's happening here. So one way to look at it is we know that tech stacks, have been growing consistently here for like the past 10 years. Every year when like one of the, you know, SaaS governance companies or, you know, the um, like single sign-on folks like Okta, you know, they publish not surveys, but actual aggregate data of like, you know, how many different apps their customers, you know, are managing. 
And it just every year it's like, oh, well, 100 and then 200 and then 300 and so on. But what had been interesting was when you break it down at the next level, you realize that we're all these pockets. And MarTech was one, right? Like the MarTech stack, uh, you know, uh, heck, uh, you know, uh, the, all, all those uh, slides I had people send in for the stackies. And you see all these different specialized marketing tools, you know, that people had assembled. What's fascinating is there have been stacks growing in sales. There have been stacks growing in customer success and service. In product and engineering, oh my goodness, the stack has exploded there. Uh, you know, security, finance, you know, pretty much every department had like been building up, you know, this stack of capabilities uh, through apps that were really targeted for their particular profession and function. But all of a sudden, it's like you, the, the light bulb starts to go off and says like, okay, well, as a business, right, we are not somehow this loosely affiliated, you know, collection of different departments. I mean, the, the, this is another case where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, you know, and so there's been a lot of movement to start to look at how do we connect the fabric across these, you know, and again, this isn't to say there aren't going to be specialized marketing apps that will always be specialized marketing apps. But I think when you start looking at things like the data layer, for instance, you're like, you know, marketing shouldn't have its own data silos. You know, what we want is we want customer data. We want operational data that's impacting customer experience. And we want that same data to be accessible across whether it's marketing or sales or product or, you know, finance, even, you know, operations, just even looking at like how we're doing on delivering those promises. And so in, in many ways to me, that's kind of like the, the, the mission of this big ops, you know, movement is to say, yeah, we've got all this complexity of all these different stacks. What we need to start to do is harness the orchestration across them. And that's why I think this is actually a huge opportunity for marketing ops and marketing tech professionals. I mean, I've, I've talked to a few folks who like when they first hear about this, you know, are a little bit cautious because they're like, well, wait a second, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of crafted, you know, the stack, you know, we have control over this, you know, things, are, the, the trains are running exactly the way we want them. What do you mean like now, instead of having like my own custom, you know, data system, I need to now instead like, oh, use the common data system that's being used by everyone else in the company. I understand a little bit of hesitation, but actually the power that this unlocks, you know, part of it is all this data that marketing is in a position to contribute to the rest of the company so that we better understand, you know, like uh, how we win, you know, the right kind of, you know, financially viable customers, you know, was that sales experience like optimized for different segments? How does that ultimately impact, you know, further down the line in like the actual customer service and delivery of the particular product or service, you know, so marketing, you know, has so much data that they can contribute to those other teams but also in the other direction, oh my goodness, you know, for marketing to be able to get to a place where we have near real-time data, you know, of what's actually happening in touch points with customers across every other function in the company, the ability to leverage that in, you know, both how we impact that customer experience, how we improve the brand, you know, how we be able to use that to trigger, whether it's campaigns or programs, you know, or other aspects of like the customer engagement uh, responsibilities of marketing. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a whole new world. And so I think for marketing technology and operations professionals to sort of look at this reintegration of MarTech into the broader company tech stack 
is going to be an opportunity to just bring bring so much value to the rest of the company, but also be able to harness a lot more value than you could have ever done in a purely MarTech silo. Mm. Yeah, I'm seeing almost exactly the same thing, Scott. Uh, you know, uh, more brands, especially enterprise brands, thinking more holistically about data. Um, and I think one of the reasons why is actually uh, thinking about privacy and how and pri- the privacy imperative is just growing. You know, you're seeing most big platforms um, limiting the amount of data you can access and collect on consumers from Apple, Facebook through to Google. All of them are making massive changes. But then you have regulation. You have, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the major world governments are thinking clearly about how do we protect a, fun- a fundamental human right, which is consumer privacy the right to remain private as a citizen. And so that I think is actually triggering a lot of this holistic type thinking about, well, what kind of data do we collect? A lot of brands, particularly enterprise, I just don't know how much they've got. And then they lift the curtain a little bit and they go, whoa, we're collecting this much granular data. We know these intimate details about our customers. You know, okay, well, this is not just about marketing anymore. This is about bringing customer service together. This is about bringing operations together. It's about bringing all these different jigsaw puzzle pieces together to try and unify how we think about data in our business. Because I think for particularly in the emergence of digital, a lot of the questions about data, and I'd be curious to see what you think about this, Scott, but a lot of the questions were quite pragmatic. You know, how do we get the most value out of this? How do we drive conversion? How do we drive customer value? But now there's a shift in thinking more philosophically about the place of data in a business. You know, what is our brand message about this? What is our uh, perspective on the right and wrong ways to use this data? You know, I think the big turning point um, culturally was the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook scandal. You know, that was one of the major uh, sort of instances of, wow, there's, you know, millions of people, their data was breached. We don't know what people are doing with it. And I think that really back in, I think it was 2017, 2018, really shifted the narrative. Now that wake of that, a lot of brands are, um, are thinking more holistically and I think more ethically about how they use data. But do you see that as one of the trends between the sort of big ops and how that sort of fits into this big picture? Yeah, totally. And I think you're absolutely right, this, this catalyst. In some ways, I think of it as like... Um, you know, like starting out an exercise program, you know, where, you know, let me just say if at one point in time in my life, I was perhaps particularly out of shape, you know, the concept of saying, all right, well, it's time to get up, you know, every morning at 5am and, you know, do the exercise and, you know, boy, that, that first process of just getting into that, (laughs) not pleasant, you know, but then after it becomes, you know, a habit and like you start to reap the benefits of just feeling healthier, you know, and uh, yeah, just more energy. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I really see that's basically what's happened for marketing and businesses more broadly with all the compliance regulation around privacy and data is very reluctant at first to like uh, have to take this on just because it's like, oh my goodness, this is all this additional work and time and energy and expense. And this wasn't originally part of, you know, our mission of, you know, what we thought we had to worry about. And now we really do have to worry about it. But an interesting thing happened along the process is the work that was required in order to be compliant, uh, you know, with these regulations and not just the regulations, but yeah, more importantly, the consumer expectations that were driving those, uh, you know, regulations, Mm. all of a sudden, like marketing teams and businesses more largely started to really 
get their data house in order, you know, sort of the uh, maturity, you know, of data management inside organizations has probably advanced more in the past three years than it had in like maybe 10, 15 uh, years before that. And now, yes, we're, we're getting, you know, the compliance and we're, you know, making sure that, you know, we're adhering to privacy expectations. But now we've got all these other benefits of like, well, we've actually got a data engine that we, we, we can analyze what's happening here across our business much better. We can, the data that we do have permission to use, you know, we have a higher quality standard of that data. We're able to activate it, you know, in ways that are much more immediate instead of like, you know, just purely, you know, looking back, you know, analysis like a year after the deed is already done. I think just that data maturity has been one of the hidden dividends that companies have gotten out of kind of being forced into developing better data practices. Mm, you know, I, I agree with you. It's we're, we're probably in the next five year cycle of getting a house in order. <laughs> you know, you know, there's stuff lying around all our house. It's time to clean the house. Maybe you do a bit of renovation, Scott. I don't know. Um, but those, those, those things are hard. I think to your point is to change that mindset, but also start progressing and yeah, starting to work towards cleaning that house. It's very hard to start picking that up, but we're starting to see that now, I think, and it's important to pay attention to. I think big operations has a big, has, well, it's big enough, but you know, it has a, uh, an important role to play in thinking about f- from a framework wise, how do you start going about doing that? Um, so I think that's quite important. The last one, the last theme, you know, so we've talked about a huge topic so far, but the last one is quite interesting. It's the emergence of no code. So I think you've been an advocate for no code for years and years now. You've, you've done a lot of thinking, a lot of reports, research on the topic of no code. And, you know, what I find is interesting within this whole movement is that it has heaps of benefits. It empowers marketers to build things, gives uh, more control over the end user of technology. So a marketer who wants a certain type of experience, they can build things for their customers without a lot of uh, outside re- requirements or needs like engineering and development and technology. Um, and it's got this interesting role in playing of the democratization of technology, particularly in enterprise brands, you know, that giving that power back to the users who are actually responsible for the experience. Um, but, you know, uh, there's some really interesting growing appetite. There's new startups minted every day in the no-code space. You know, there's a lot of VC activity in, in that area. Um, but, you know, uh, when I think about no-code, there's this adjacent to- concept of uh, the citizen developer. You know, the citizen, kind of like the citizen police officer, you know, I'm not sure if you've ever been arrested, Scott, you don't need to tell our audience that, but you know, the, like, you know, back in the day, people were, you know, you'd have a citizen police officer or uh, somebody that, you know, would see a crime happening and they'd go and try and stop it. You know, it's the same kind of idea, you know, this, um, the democratization of using technology. So anyway, we were talking about this with uh, David Rabb in a podcast um, last year, and he asked me the question, he said, well, you know, you don't really see many citizen brain surgeons, do you? You know, and he's point of view is that you know there's always going to be a role for technology specialists to uh to build things for brands because it manages risk and ensures quality and it and ensures also i think scale as well you know often you know technical debt is a serious issue in most brands uh having people that are specialized when marketers are building things to understand the scalability and the the cost of building that thing and, and maintaining it as well i think is quite important but how do you see that how do you balance that sort of flexibility and scalability quality but also you know, empowering marketers and democratizing some of this technology that brands are using. How do you approach that, Scott? Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm a huge David Robb fan as well, too. So I love his question of, oh, well, you don't see citizen brain surgeons, do you? 
because that is actually the perfect analogy to describe what's happening in um, the no-code movement. Sure, you don't see citizen brain surgeons, but what do you see? If, if I have a headache, do I go to the surgeon? If I have a tummy ache, do I go to the surgeon? No, I get an aspirin, I take it, I feel better. I go, I take like a Tums or a Rolaids, you know, I feel better. These are entirely different use cases, you know, the, the, these low end use cases where, you know, I just need this piece of data or I just need this, you know, like form here or, yeah, I want to have some sort of workflow that when someone's signing up for this event, you know, I can trigger the following things to happen, you know, in sequence for them, you know, they're not the brain surgeon uh, sort of software development for which we still absolutely do need software developers and enterprise architects. And yeah, there, there, there's no lack of opportunities for those, but it was all these like low end and mid end use cases that to be honest, it didn't even make sense to have developers do it. It wasn't worth their time. Like, I mean, I, I, I dare you, you know, to go to find me a web developer, a professional web developer out there that when you go to them and say, hi, I'd like you to make 300 variations of this landing page for my marketing team, uh, you know, marketing campaign, you know, like claps their hands of joys and said, oh, I've been waiting for a mission like that. That's awesome. No, they're like, listen, I'm going to go build some fairly sophisticated web app that no one else would actually be able to do. How about you take this no code tool and you make the 300 variations of the landing page yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, Everybody wins with that, you know, so I think it's just really important to recognize that this democratization of capabilities is not about the super pro expert use cases. It's about all the just low end use cases of, hey, I just want some data or I just want to understand like what's happening here. I want to be able to like shift, you know, a workflow of what's happening when a customer needs something to be able to do that dynamically, you know, within the teams that are actually feeling those pains or seeing those opportunities, that's game changing. Now, that being said, I will also agree that, and this kind of goes back to the big ops thing, you know, to have individuals and individual teams leveraging those no code and low code tools, yes, very productive for those teams. But there are questions now of, okay, even if the individual use cases, you know, are, are modest, they're a good fit, they're a good use case for a no code or low code tool, at the point in time that you have, hundreds or perhaps thousands of people across your organization, you know, that have all been imbued with this power, you've got a whole bunch of other things of just like, okay, well, let's make sure if, you know, they're collecting different data, you know, how do we make sure the data standards are the same? How do we make sure we're like enforcing, you know, the governance rules, you know, across what different teams are allowed to do with these no-code tools? How do we make sure, you know, certain templates of like the experience? Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things in orchestrating, you know, this new army of, you know, empowered business users, you know, to make the no-code movement truly successful at scale. But that's actually now one of the things you see a lot of the no-code platforms and the low-code platforms doing is that's part of their selling proposition is like, yes, we're still going to allow the experts, you know, to set the guardrails and to have the uh, oversight and the view of what's capable here. But then we're going to give the power for a lot of the actual implementation of these different low-end use cases to, yeah, the individuals who have the use case that they need. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's it's kind of like, um, you know, extracting, um, you know, uh, binary code back when computers were invented, right, to different languages. You know, when you're coding, you're not really pushing around ones and zeros anymore. 
you're writing commands. And it's no code to me, the concept's kind of familiar with the idea of abstraction, right? It's extracting uh, technology requirements in a way that uh, people can access. So it's more about accessibility than it is about, you know, and setting the right guardrails and the right methodologies to enable scale and, you know, mitigate risk and things like that. It's about accessibility uh, more than anything else. You know, I can go and write Python or I can learn JavaScript and I can understand the words and the, the letters and how they interplay together because the language has been abstracted on top of a machine. And I think that's, a, I think it's an interesting parallel there. I mean, you know, it's kind of what, you know, what computers, how they're, you know, it's Moore's law, basically, right? It's, it's scale and innovation, but it's also abstraction in Moore's, Moore's law, I think often um, that things as things scale and as uh, innovation advances, so does also the way it's abstracted um, from the original Mac to the iPhone, you know, how many layers of abstraction are there? You know, to me, that's a lot. Um, but I think that's a really great way of thinking about balancing this, set the right guardrails, have the right professionals in the room when you're buying no code tools. And those professionals, are, those specialists are there to facilitate how they use it in a way that's appropriate as well. So um, really great thinking. I think it's a great way to add to this no code debate that I'm sure is raging somewhere around the internet. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the last question I have for you, Scott, is, um, you know, you talk about these three themes in 2022 and you say that they coalesce, right? They overlap to what you call is a digital firm. Now, you know, a digital firm, but the first thing I think about is technology companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Shopify, Stripe, Alibaba, um, Tencent, you know, those are all technology digital businesses, right? At the heart of it, what they're doing is building technology. Uh, but, you know, every company is now having to participate with technology and, you know, digital transformations continue to go for good or bad or ugly. There's great ones that happen. There's ugly ones that happen. But, you know, um, companies have been transforming since the PC arrived, you know, and since Windows operating system gave brands uh, an ability to start using the computer. Now, um, what does the digital firm look like from your perspective, though? You know, how do these three themes come together? And what does it mean for something like a retailer? or an agriculture business and all these other companies that don't necessarily have technology at the heart of what they're doing, but need to build those capabilities and become a digital firm. Yeah, I'm gonna make a somewhat uh, controversial statement. Maybe you won't think it's controversial. I suspect a lot of people will though, is I'm gonna say we can declare victory on digital transformation, right? There's a very big mission, you know, of yeah, okay, we'll digitally transform and that means our businesses will run on and we'll engage our customers through digital technologies. Well, I mean, now today, pretty much every back office function runs on a stack of software. We we're just talking about that. MarTech and AdTech and, you know, uh, I mean, like it underpins pretty much every marketing campaign and channel and program at this point. Most interactions with customers, you know, for most businesses, you know, are now either happening through digital uh, touch points or, you know, even if they're not directly a digital touch point, they're being supported, you know, by a capability behind the scenes to make that experience as good as it can be. And so at some level, it's like, okay, well, I mean, it's hard not to see businesses as, yeah, being digitally transformed, but it begs the question of like, okay, well, now what? <laughs> because it turns out that actually just having everything have digital components to it 
isn't where <laughs> the, 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 the challenge is. The challenge is like, well, wait a second. Now that we have all these digital components, we realize, oh, well, we want to change this thing here. Or there's this disruption that happened over here. We need to be able to respond to that quickly. Or, um, oh, yeah, there's this whole new, I mean, pick something, you know, like the metaverse, uh, you know, like, oh, my goodness, how are we going to engage with that? How are we going to have <laughs> NFTs? You know, it's like what we realize is, okay, just being digital in the sense of, yes, now everything has ones and zeros, isn't really where the challenge is. The challenge is, is actually behaving in a digital way. And the thing that makes digital so special more than anything else is this incredible malleability, you know, that, you know, unlike atoms, you know, that are actually quite hard to like change and reconfigure on the fly. I mean, bits can just be changed and reconfigured on the fly magnificently. But the limit there is not the underlying technology. The limit there is like, oh, well, how do you run an organization, you know, and architect it in a way that it can have that adaptability and that malleability and that fluidity in which it changes, you know? And so to me, that is what I mean by like saying, okay, now it's not just about being digitally transformed. It's about running a digital firm. Uh, and like, again, you ask a totally fair question of like, okay, well, what does that mean to it? Like a, you know, retailer, because they still actually do have, you know, physical atoms. Hmm. Yeah. But how are they deciding like which physical atoms, you know, where they are, how they're getting people to them? How's that supply chain working that? What happens when someone purchases that, you know, you know, what sort of like loyalty, you know, relationship happens afterwards? You know, what if they have their, you know, like phone, is they're engaging with us or they want to like check something online before they physically come to the store? I mean, we've got a whole bunch of these digital things. And again, the companies already have these digital technologies, but I think what they're struggling with now in this next wave is saying, how do we get really good at, at changing it, having that fluidity and that adaptability that in theory software gives us, you know, but the practice of actually doing that, yeah, it kind of changes like everything we've thought about of, uh, you know, modern, you know, business management. Yeah, I think there's an interesting pattern. I think there's this, I think what digital firms do really well is they see business problems and they turn them into business products. So they automate a bottleneck within the business or they go from paper, you know, paper bills to um, uh, uh, email bills, for example, or SMS bills, you know, they turn the things that don't scale and are costly and are problematic into products to sell their own business and then to also sell in the business uh, to other businesses as well. You know, so it's a really interesting shift from like, okay, operations to product from, yeah, how do we create fluidity and flexibility with the way that people use technology in our business? How do we create cross-functionality around how teams uh, and the processes that they use, how they overlap together? You know, um, it's the, uh, you, you say in the article that it's the end, it's the end outcome of the digital transformation. And uh, what I'm hearing is that you're actually saying that most transformations, you know, what digital transformations, are, it's, it's already kind of happened. We're at, at the tail end of that, uh, which I think is absolutely fascinating. I think uh, I agree with you on that point that most brands now, they're building maturity and they're, they've got a very good foundation for thinking about how to be a technology business, even if they sell atoms, selling things like t-shirts or groceries or you know actual things that are tangibly in the real world not digital yeah, it's products. not just nfts of t-shirts but yeah. actual t-shirts yes <laughs> <laughs> well uh well thank you scott for, for
for joining us and making sense of MarTech. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Highly recommend you check out uh, Scott's article on the three trends. Heaps of link outs, the uh, whole swath of research and really great to get uh, you thinking about what you should be focusing and paying attention to in 2022. So I want to throw to you, Scott, where can we find you on the internet and where can we interact with your content? Sure. Well, I am uh, Chief Martech without the H at the end. Uh, Chiefmartech.com is uh, my blog. I'm also at uh, Chief Martech on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, too. Happy to like engage with you if you have questions. Great. Well, uh, we will be regularly interviewing people like Scott people who are at the forefront of this industry thinking seriously about it and enacting change within the martech space and we delve into topics that subscribers care about every fortnight so if you'd like to rate and subscribe uh, please head to the martechweekly.com and we'll see you again